From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley. Uh, But the man of the hour, every hour on the hour, is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical (laughs) Observatory. Good day, Fred. Good day, Andrew. It's it's nice to be your hourly companion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no one else will talk to me. (laughs) Now, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, One of the most exciting things they've discovered about Pluto uh, since the flyby, which has been sending down just tons and tons of data that they're now sifting through, is the possibility that it might actually have an ocean, which is just uh, astounding. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, an asteroid impact on Earth that uh, had a a bigger impact, if I can use that uh, terminology, than uh, than we first thought. We're talking, you know, 60-plus million years ago, but uh, what they're discovering now about that uh, asteroid impact is not only did it probably wipe out the dinosaurs, it created mountains, it did all sorts of amazing things. So uh, we're going to talk about that. And Peggy Whitson. Peggy's an astronaut, and uh, Peggy's, um, you know, getting up there, uh, not only literally, but um, in terms of uh, years on Earth or off Earth, whichever way you want to look at it. But uh, she's an amazing person. That's basically what we're saying. So we'll have a bit of a chat about her. But firstly, Fred, this uh, amazing news about Pluto, the dwarf planet in the outer reaches of our solar system that may, in fact, have an ocean. That is extraordinary. It is. Um, it, look, it is the last thing I think that um, that the uh, you know that the New Horizons mission scientists expected to find. In fact, everything that we found when uh, New Horizons flew by Pluto last year has was a surprise. Um, but uh, if this is the case, Pluto joins basically uh, six other worlds out there in the depths of the solar system that are known to have this structure of a rocky core, uh, an, a liquid ocean overlaying it, a global liquid ocean, and and then uh, an, a layer of ice on top. So Pluto might be the seventh world that we know that has this structure. And what's led to that idea, uh, Andrew, is first of all, we know that the most of the surface of Pluto is is, is solid ice. It's, mm. it's ice, water ice that's as hard as rock because of Pluto's minus 200 and 39 degrees Celsius ambient temperature, which is chilly by any standards, really. But what um, what is what I, I guess one of the most interesting things about the uh, New Horizons flyby was the discovery of this this heart shaped region, uh, which fortuitously was on the side of Pluto um, that the New Horizons spacecraft could see when it did the flyby, 
that heart-shaped region is in two halves and the left-hand side some people call it the left-hand ventricle uh, as we see it yeah. uh, is very very smooth and is known to be made out of a kind of slush of liquid nitrogen so, so nitrogen is um, it, it's basically uh, uh, a gaseous uh, um, chemical here on earth most of our atmosphere is made of nitrogen uh, a transparent and um, you know odorless gas but the, uh, the the temperature at which uh, nitrogen liquefies is is actually not quite as low as Pluto's temperature. So this liquid nitrogen, which is almost like it's it's almost solid nitrogen. It's a very funny thing, is nitrogen. It does very odd things when it gets to these low temperatures. But what you've got is this is this region of Pluto, a large circular region of Pluto, which is made of liquid nitrogen, a sort of slush of nitrogen, mm. uh, filling what is probably an impact basin, a, a large hollow in the surface that has been caused by uh, an asteroid impact or something of that sort, probably a long time ago. Do, do, now, we, the, do we know how deep it is or anything like that? No, not really. Uh, it's, it's, um, its depth is measured probably in kilometres or tens of kilometres rather than hundreds of kilometres. I mean, Pluto itself is only just over 2,000 kilometres in diameter. So uh, you're talking about something that's, that's fairly, it's fairly substantial. It's um, probably, you know, similar to the deepest ocean trenches on the Earth, something like that. Wow. But, but the thing that's really interesting and what's led to the, um, the deduction that there might well be an ocean underneath Pluto's surface is the fact that... Um, uh, the well, let me put it this way: You know that Pluto and Charon, its its large moon, which is actually half the diameter of Pluto, they are locked together so that they each face one another in in Charon's six-day orbit. So Charon goes around once in six days. Pluto um, basically rotates on its axis once in six days. So it's always the same face of Charon, always the same face of Pluto that are looking at each other. If I can put it that way. Yeah. Now. If you draw a line from Charon to Pluto and send that line through Pluto, what do you find on the other side where the line comes out on the other side? You find this depression, the liquid nitrogen depression. We call it Sputnik Planitia, ah. uh, Sputnik Plains. And so and that is um, very significant. The fact that this region of Pluto's surface that has clearly been significantly disturbed and now has this um, so almost a, a glacier of, of uh, nitrogen slush inside it. The fact that that is on the opposite side of Pluto to the direction to Charon is a significant thing. Mm. And so it has led scientists to try and work out why that should be. Um, the thinking seems to be that when that depression was formed by some sort of impact, it was not aligned with, with Charon. And what's happened is that Charon has pulled it into, the gravitational pull of Charon has pulled it into this alignment so that the on the far side of Pluto, as seen from Charon, you've got this depression. Um, and that uh, can only happen if you have uh, water underneath, is what ah, it's got to say. Okay. So, so that's the deduction. That There is one other scenario uh, which doesn't require water, uh, it, it's uh, a slightly different mechanism, but it looks, uh, from what I've read, as if the water uh, scenario is actually the more likely of the two. So um, apparently the, the idea is that um, because of uh, probably still the, uh, the 
intrinsic heat that's in Pluto's core, which probably like a lot of the Earth's heat comes from nuclear reactions taking place in the core. So the core is warm enough that it warms the uh, basically what could could have been ice, but is actually water above it. Mm. Um, and on top of that, you've got this this shell of ice sitting and it, and maybe the water underneath allows the shell to rotate so that it aligns this Sputnik planum or Sputnik planitia with uh, with the with Charon. So it's fancy stuff, very interesting stuff. Uh, but I, I guess in a sense what you're saying is that there's some kind of lubrication mechanism underneath the surface and water is the is the obvious one for that. Yes. Um, as I said, we know that structure exists in six other worlds out there in the solar system, three satellites of Jupiter, three of Saturn. So they, um, so it, it perhaps is not surprising that uh, Pluto would have that as well. Now, one of the things we've talked about many times is uh, water worlds are being looked at as very possible uh, places to discover life. But I think I heard somewhere during the last week or so that in the case of Pluto, Pluto, that's probably absolutely impossible. Um, is is that the case, or are we looking at Pluto now as a as a potential <laughs> life? Holder? I don't know that it's. I don't know that you can say it's impossible because right. if there is liquid water there, uh, it's kept liquid by being under high pressure and probably by some heating from uh, the interior of Pluto. There may be the sort of black smokers that we find at the the base of uh, of some of the oceans of the Earth mm. on the floors of these oceans, which are thought to have been where the first living organisms originated. So, look, it may well be uh, that one day we might be thinking about life on Pluto. We, it's, it's an extraordinary idea that, um, that if you've got an ocean there, that there could be stuff living in it. Uh, whether it's detectable life, of course, is a different matter. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it, it is um, remarkable that you can make these deductions from from the flyby and from the observations that were made. Incredible um, data, and and they're still sifting through it. And so every you know few weeks, it seems we're finding out something extraordinary about uh, about this tiny little world so far away, so cold. We thought you know it's just a rock, but there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it, yeah. So the, the idea of the ocean is not 100% certain, but it is seemingly, it's sort of emerging as the most likely scenario to explain the situation that we find Pluto in. Yeah. But it's remarkable stuff, as you say. It's really quite extraordinary. Okay, well, watch this piece of watch space. space. <laughs> <laughs> we always do. Watch this space nuts. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to look at the asteroid impact that uh, we've talked about many, many times for many, many reasons. The wiping out of the dinosaurs, the fact that they're actually, um, they've been exploring it and trying to find the, the dead centre of it where it sort of bounced back up to see what they can learn from that. And uh, there's just all this uh, information that's being collated about this particular impact that happened 66 odd million years ago. But now they think it not only probably killed off the dinosaurs, although that seems now to be somewhat debatable, um, it, it may also have been responsible for the creation of mountain ranges and who knows what other features on planet Earth. <laughs> um, it seems that it did make a mountain range, um, uh, Andrew, uh, higher than the Himalayas, which lasted about maybe five minutes. Wow. <laughs> 
Um, so what's happened is, um, yes, the, uh, it's the, in the, near the Yucatan Peninsula in Central America is the site of what we call the Chicxulub Crater, which is uh, actually barely visible, but there is, there is evidence of a crater there. And that is, for many years, has been um, thought to be the site of the impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. And in fact, you can you can do that from you know looking at the rock strata. The, the strata in which the the dinosaurs disappeared is the same strata uh, as the as as this impact took place mm. in Central America. So that's been um, fairly well established. Now, what is new is that the uh, the uh, research team that I think you and I might have talked about earlier in the year uh, on a vessel equipped with drilling equipment, uh, a research team has actually drilled deep into not the center of that crater, but something called the peak ring, which is the, the, the ring that's pushed up uh, by the enormous pressures that, uh, that the impact causes. They've drilled into that. They've drilled into it several kilometers. I think four kilometers was the depth, maybe five. Um, and what they've what they're now telling us is what the results of that drilling are and they are actually quite extraordinary um so the the bottom line is uh it was about a 15 kilometer wide object that impacted there 66 million years ago um a crust it punched a hole in the earth's crust about 100 kilometers across and about 30 kilometers deep uh that sort of the, the, that depression collapsed um, eventually leading leaving a crater about two, 200 kilometers across and a few kilometers deep the central zone of the impact actually rebounded and then relaxed and that's what gives rise to this inner ring and basically uh, all this took place in the space of about uh, something like 10 minutes uh, the the uh, headline piece of news is that the you know there was this instant Himalayas were created and be, that's because the the mountain range that was that resulted from this impact uh, even though it was very temporary very very short lived was actually higher than the Himalayas um, and I think what it has underlined to the scientists uh, who've been working on this is that because the pressures involved with this the amount of energy being delivered to the earth's crust the earth's crust basically behaved like a fluid and what they've done is they've essentially simulated uh the impact um in a in a digital computer of course uh with all the right um you know stresses involved the right amount of energy involved the right uh, toughness of the material on the surface uh, they've simulated that and and really demonstrated that what you get at the end of it is exactly what you find in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, looking at the the core sediments, they've basically revealed that um, uh, the granite of the material of the core there is shocked in a in a remarkable way. You know, on every scale, they say there are fractures in it. It's it's obviously gone through such a traumatic. Um, beating by this event taking place, that it's really changed the structure. But what I think is most remarkable about this, and um, if any of uh, our listeners want to head off to the BBC website, there's a simulation on there of what the impact actually did to the Earth's surface. And you can play that, and it plays for 
the equivalent of 10 minutes, it's speeded up. But you will be astonished mm. at how that, create, uh, that crater was created and what the, you know, what the flow of material was as, as that impact uh, 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 basically spread through the district. And of course, huge amounts of material were thrown up into the, into, into the atmosphere at that time. Uh, the sun was darkened on the surface, the temperature dropped, and that's what killed off the the dinosaurs, the ones that survived the shockwave coming from it. Yeah, but um, I mean, you, you talk about the event lasting five to ten minutes, but the aftermath of that was global cooling and darkening of the skies, as you said, and 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 basically a a blanket of death, really, um, that that followed for perhaps months or years. Yes, that's right. Uh, in fact, probably hundreds of years. Mm. Um, that one of the reasons for doing this uh, drilling was to try and find out how soon life took hold again in the you know in the impact zones and we haven't really heard much about that yet uh, what we've what we've heard about is just the impact and the, the the effect on uh, on the rocks of the earth and it is staggering there's no two ways about it when you look at the um, the simulation that they've they've put and it's it's in the form of a cross section through the earth's crust um, when you look at that and you see the distances that are involved we're talking about tens of kilometres here, and, yeah, the, the, the surface is just ripped up. It's just as though it was a liquid, exactly as though the surface was a liquid. It just makes me wonder what might have happened to the life that existed in the general vicinity at the time. I mean, would it have just been evaporated off yeah, pretty quickly? Yeah, I think so. Uh, anything uh, nearby, and I guess that's within a few... Uh, you know, probably um, a few hundred kilometres, there would have been such a shockwave that the pressure would have probably killed everything. Mm. Uh, very, very significant event. I mean, something that size, 15 kilometres, is, um, yeah, it, it pr produces global changes. Wow, OK. Uh, and all that from just drilling a, a four-kilometre hole, you can you, you just get so much data with the um, with the technology these days. Like like we were talking about Pluto, what, you know, that was a flyby, and the data we've uh, collated uh, from that and, and, and are learning now about Pluto, this is similar. We're you know, digging up a few rocks. It's, it's, it, that's I mean, exactly it's right. It's obviously yeah. more complicated than that, but that's basically what we're doing. Yeah, and so it's this combination that you know science thrives on. It's a combination between the observations that you can make and the, and the theoretical models that you can build because you know how physics works. Um, and when the two come together, look, everybody's very happy. Uh, mm. Actually, they're happy when they don't come together as well, because that means you've got your theory wrong. You've got to start thinking about it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we call that trial and error. Trial and error, that's right. <laughs> mm. All right. Uh, still probably more to learn from that, uh, that impact crater as well. So we'll, uh, we'll, we, we may well have more news on that in the future. This is Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at an astronaut that um, a lot of people are looking at. That's Peggy Whitson. Now, Peggy's, uh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, 57 years old, as far as I can tell. Uh, not yet. Not she yet 57. Be. She will be 57. Before she comes home, she'll be 57. Uh -huh. uh, and she's, uh, she's done, this is her third trip to the International Space Station. Why is she sort of gathering a lot of attention at the moment? Uh, well, she's got everything going for her, hasn't she? She's got she's uh, she's female first of all, so she's uh, very much in in what uh, uh, is uh, the focus of our attention in getting girls into into science and engineering. So she's certainly a role model for that. 
but she's a role model for the likes of me as well, <laughs> the, the um, more mature people of the world. Mm. Um, because, as, as you said, she will turn 57 while she's, she's on the mission. Uh, so she, she was basically launched um, earlier uh, in uh, a few days ago now, earlier in the week. Uh, she's uh, somebody with a lot of experience, actually, of space flight. This is her, this is her third mission. Uh, and uh, she is really a veteran in the sense that she first went into space in 2002, she became the first woman to command the International Space Station in 2007. So, you know, she's um, she's pretty pretty uh, high up there in terms of the the rankings of uh, of astronauts. She'll actually do that again because um, uh, when in about three months, kind of halfway through her trip, she's there for six months. Uh, she will take charge of the International Space Station again. So she'll be the commander once more. Um, but what's really interesting, I think, is by the time she gets to the end of this mission, she will have spent more time in space than any other American astronaut. Wow. Um, and that's um, the record so far is um, held by Jeff Williams, uh, a NASA astronaut. Uh, and he, he's got a total of 534 days in space. Uh, so uh, she will exceed that and become... The, the the U.S. astronaut with the most uh, days in space. That's incredible. And, and when you think about it, I mean, that's like a year and a half yeah, it's a of your life. life. <laughs> that's right. That's a fair percentage of, of, of a 57-year-old's life when you, really, when you really get down to tin tacks. Do we know the record for the longest anyone from any nation spent in space? Yeah, yes, I think the Russians hold that. It's more than two years. Wow. Uh, and it was during, I think it was during the Mir station, uh, when the Mir station, space station was um, was operating. Uh, that uh, that was deorbited, uh, if I remember rightly, in the either late 1990s or early 2000s. Mm. Uh, but I think, um, you know, so, uh, Peggy Whitson has made some interesting comments about her experience. She clearly likes being in space. Yeah, obviously. Um, and... Um, She's quoted as saying, you know, the most important thing about the station is the friendships and the work we accomplish there. And that in many ways echoes something you and I talked about a few weeks ago, which yes. is, um, you know, how um, really the national barriers just just shrink to nothing on the space station. And it is very much a community of people who really enjoy one another's company and actually have great admiration for each other. Yes, well, um, well, well you look at the United States and uh, Russia at the moment and there's, there's tension there. And yet yeah. in this case, you're going to have an American in space with a Russian and a Frenchman Frenchman, that's right. They're they're all they're, they're the ones who have just arrived there. Yeah, uh, and they'll join three other astronauts uh, already at the station in the station. So uh, nationality. Yes. What I'm getting at is, as you said, nationality is is irrelevant. They're there irrelevant. because they've got um, something to do, and they're all focused on on achieving that, regardless of where they come from. Quite so. Mm. So it's it's a it's a borderless. Uh, environment and um i look forward to when we'll have that on earth andrew <laughs> well i think i think that it would probably be easier if we just all left the planet and went into space <laughs> i think that so. that would solve it and i think it would be easier <laughs> maybe so that's right <laughs> anyway good on her she's doing a great job and um hopefully she will um, she will thoroughly enjoy this mission as she has done the earlier one i'm sure she will do, do we know what they're doing up there 
um, the usual kind of mix of uh, biological and physical and engineering experiments, uh, you know, plus um, uh, so I, guess, I guess medical experimentation in the sense that it's always uh, in, in uh, it's always um, informative uh, to see the effect of weightlessness uh, weightlessness on people's bodies. Mm. It's all part and parcel of learning about how we become a spacefaring species. Yes, because that's ultimately going to happen. Um, yeah. we're, we're not that far away from it. I think that's right. Mm. All right, Fred, yeah, as always, a great joy to uh, have you with us and, and tell us about these amazing things that are happening uh, from Pluto right down to um, big holes in the Earth and, and wherever else. Who knows where we'll go next week. But thank you, yeah. as always. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Good to talk to you, Andrew, and take care. See you soon. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening to our uh, astronomy podcast. And don't forget, uh, Space Time with Stuart Gary is also uh, a, a podcast you can listen to via our stable of uh, podcasts. We've got a whole bunch of people doing all sorts of interesting stuff through Bytes.com. Uh, but uh, don't forget, you can also uh, get in touch with us, send us your messages, your notes, your thoughts, uh, anything you like, questions, to our Facebook page, Space Nuts. Until next week, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.